The Vancouver School of Theology is located on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. Friends, welcome to Bruder Holtz, this uh, podcast we've been doing for the Vancouver School of Theology, talking to each of our faculty members and the work they do here at the school. Uh, today, uh, we're here at the school again with Todd and Rob and Allison and Amanda, and we're very glad uh, for the support that they offer to this program. Todd. Well, it's fantastic because we get to interview a new uh, member of the faculty. Indeed. New being June. June, end, of end of June, you came here. So um, uh, this is the Reverend Canon Dr. Rob James, which I think for the rest of the conversation, we might say Rob sure. from that. So, but I'll, let me uh, introduce a little bit uh, from kind of all the various things that have happened before you came here. So Rob comes to VST from Wells Cathedral in Somerset, where he was the Canon Chancellor. That's the most previous job. But before that was the vicar, minister, pastor, of a three-point charge, and uh, and done a number of things before that, including working with the UK government on security matters. But we can't ask any questions about that. Um, Rob has six degrees from five universities. Just kind of collects them, um, including a PhD from the University of London. And then uh, one of the more recent things, and I've just been reading this new book, is a book that uh, that Rob has written called The Spiral intratextuality in the gospel of luke and so i have some questions about that because i've really really been enjoying it it's fantastic and so so great to have you here and to be together with richard and the crew uh looking forward to a great conversation great rob i wanted to ask you uh, how long have you taught and why do you do it so this is the first time i've taught as a full-time job but i've actually taught for oh about 10 years or something i suppose i used to do um, something like a day a week. Um, I've taught at the University of South Wales, uh, which was quite near to my three-point parish charge. So you could hop across the border from England to Wales, do a bit of teaching, and then hop back again and <laughs> be a parish priest again. Um, so I, I've always loved teaching, and I've taught a number of subjects. So at the University of South Wales, there was it was a very general religious studies degree, so I taught most of the Christianity input and some of the Islam input as well on that degree. Um, and uh, I've taught um, trainee priests in England as well, again, as a part-time, very part-time thing. Uh, so this was an opportunity, taking this job, to go full-time with right. that and to have other things as my part-time engagement. And what, what's exciting for you about teaching? Yeah, I love being in the classroom and being with students, um, there's something about discovering together something new. Um, you know, I have a syllabus written out and I have things I want to say and things I want to talk about, but there is always something new that I discover as well as the students discovering new things. Sometimes in the conversation or uh, in a question, um, there, there's something unlocked uh, about the subject that we're looking at together. So that's really exciting. 
Um, I like the the hunt for better questions mm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a lot of what I do is not not giving a definitive answer, but trying to invite um, a deeper way of looking at a question. And that's a really exciting thing to be involved in. Um, yeah, so, so I, I love it. And I suppose I've always loved amateur dramatics, which is why I... Hmm. Love dressing up and being an Anglican priest, <laughs> but there's also something about acting in a classroom, you know. Um, and just is there, uh, is there a uniform here? Do you get to wear a VST costume of some kind? I have a badge. Okay, <laughs> well, oh, yeah. a, a hoodie, a hoodie, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or a t-shirt. Yeah. How does like you you speak about in, until this full time appointment um, that you were doing kind of a couple of things, teaching but working in kind of parish work as well. Um, how how does one inform the other? How do you feel kind of because now you're in more of a full time academic setting, um, but you still got you know the church on your mind. So how do those things interplay? Sure, yeah. So I'm I'm still very involved in the church, not the church I was in before because that's quite a long way away. Yeah. Um, but the Anglican Church of Canada, I'm I'm licensed to the Diocese of New Westminster. Uh, I preach at various churches locally. Um, I'm speaking at the diocesan conference in April. So there's there's various things I'm involved in in the church locally. And I think the the local church and churches round about, um, in a sense, provide the context for teaching here mm-hmm. because a lot of what I'm doing is preparing students to go out and be ministers mm-hmm. in those places. I don't think I could do this current role without having had some years' experience in ministry first. So actually, it isn't just about yeah. having some academic credentials, but it's also about having that experience and the the way in which I can continue being a practitioner as well as a theoretician is, is, is quite important. What you're saying there, it makes me think of your previous comment about helping people to ask good questions and I can see that direction like not only in the classroom but knowing that these questions that exist now in the classroom are going into the parish absolutely and, and the hope that's in that yeah and um, you know if somebody's in a parish preaching um, then the the understanding they might get in the classroom is part of it but they've got to put that into a practical context do you find that here at uh, VST that that's generally the case with, with your colleagues as well? I think all of my colleagues to some extent go out and have some practical experience. Some of us are ministers in the various traditions and so it kind of comes naturally. Um, others are not ordained but I think they, they still have um, involvement in the local churches and invitations to go and talk to groups of ministers or to go and preach on particular occasions. So I think everybody in some way is involved, some probably more so than others because of their own background. But it's a community of people who do that, whether it's staff or students. Um, and some of our non-academic staff also have their own preaching ministries as, as lay people in mm-hmm. their own contexts. Mm-hmm. What interests you, like, so, well, maybe describe, what are you responsible for teaching here? Like, what are the kinds of things you teach? So, I'm the professor of Anglican Formation and Studies, which is anything Anglican, basically, or Lutheran, in fact. So, um, Lutherans and Anglicans who come to the school uh, have me as their principal advisor for their course. 
especially if they're MDiv students and they're preparing for um, ordination, right. which may involve um, still having to go through the formal church processes to get um, postulancy status to do that. So um, I'm involved in the practicalities for students as well as teaching them particular mm -hmm. Anglican courses, which um, there's a polity course that I teach, there's mm -hmm. a theology course, Anglican theology, uh, there are various um, one-credit courses on particular aspects of Anglican liturgy, so marriage, funerals, and so on. Um, there is there are some liturgy courses as well. So how does that? So you have so you're talking Anglican formation. You have United Church. You have Presbyterian Church. Um, but then there are courses that students are taking that like a general theology course that. So, uh, I don't know, that's maybe a question for you, Richard, and how does it all relate for those listening? Maybe a bit of a surprise uh, to Rob, but he arrived and was suddenly assigned a new course, so he okay. teaches a course. I was, I teach one of those courses. One yeah. of the full school courses. <laughs> T tell us about that course. So, so that's um, Introduction to Worship, which uh, is a course that everybody takes more or less, and it's expected on the MDiv program, certainly as a core course, but many other students also take it. Uh, it is 11 three-hour sessions trying to take students through the basis of Christian worship mm -hmm. from um, hist historical um, texts through to modern-day applications of, of how you might um, undertake worship. So we've just done a couple of weeks on the Eucharist, the Mass, the Lord's Supper, uh, Holy Communion, call it what you will, and we've used all of those terms and sort of talked about that. Because right, this is like a multi-denominational, so this is not only... It's a multi-denominational, so the principal denominations are Anglican and Lutheran, uh, Presbyterian and United, uh, and then a number of other students who are not aligned to one of those denominations but choose to come to VST right. for um, some good reasons. Yeah. Uh, tell us about those students. What have you noticed so far? Your first time teaching full-time. Your first time teaching in Canada? First time teaching in Canada. Um, and I have to say, I think students today, I'll let you into a bit of a secret, I think <laughs> students today probably work harder than I did when, huh? I, was, when I was an undergraduate. No, I thought they um, were entitled think, and lazy. I, and I think they've put a lot of hours in. Um, I, and I've been... I've slightly cut back on how many readings I've been putting mm. up for them to read because I found that everybody's trying to read everything and I kind of hadn't expected that. Oh yeah, so, nobody did that. Uh, so yeah. No, nobody did that when I was an undergraduate. <laughs> very or, or, no, very didn't happen students. in my time either. So, which is delightful because actually it means that when people come to class there's a lot of good thought that's yeah. already gone on, a lot, of, a lot of decent questions that people have, um, which is, is really good. Um, and uh, those who are studying asynchronously, so that is people who can't be here in person, uh, some of our courses can't be taken asynchronously, asynchronously but many can. Um, we record the lectures and then put them up afterwards, and I've had um, mm. some really good questions from those who have later on watched a lecture and then come, come to me with a, a question so or a point of view. could be somebody from a different country... Different. Could be so. I mean, I've got somebody um, from the other side of Canada, for example. Right. There's a few people who um, work full time and, and can't make particular hours for for a lecture. Yeah. So yeah, there's there's a variety of reasons why somebody might want to take a course asynchronously. 
So, Rob, you've talked about a lecture. So how does a class go? T t tell me what it's like from, from beginning to end and who's involved, the technologies used, because it's, it's a very different, when we say classroom or lecture, those things have evolved a great deal, haven't they? Yeah, they have. I mean, when I, over the summer as I was planning the lectures, in inverted commas, um, the thing that freaked me out was the fact that we, of course, do hybrid teaching, which means you've got some people in oh, person yeah. and some on Zoom. Now, I, I've taught before all on Zoom or all in person, but I've never before done the hybrid stuff, and I was struggling to work out how this was going to really work. So that was the thing that was um, nagging at me over the summer, I suppose. But actually, it, it works very well and if you have students um, who are in person with you and they've got a phone or a computer with them then actually very quickly you can if you're doing some small group work you can actually mix up the people and have some who are actually on zoom and some who are actually in person and mix the groups around so you have one cohesive unit and that seems to work quite well uh, and when we have whole class discussion um, I'm very blessed with having an excellent um, assistant in the room um, who is also a student here but is paid to run the technology for me and he's very good at pointing out if I've missed somebody who's put their hand up on Zoom or whatever, he's, he's watching that all the time for me. So yeah, like each class session. now or most classes or is it all yep. have like a, a tech aid basically, right? Yeah, like yeah. Classroom technical assistant. Classroom technical assistant. CTA. <laughs> yeah. Which I get would be, and exactly like you say, oh, there's a question on Zoom because you're just looking in the room or something. Yeah, well, it, it, it's quite good. The board is there in front of me, and I, I, I normally spot people, but he's, he's very good at just telling me if I've, if I've missed somebody who's trying to come in. What I tend to do is plan far too much stuff. I always find out so far I've planned more than three hours' worth of material, uh, which is how long the sessions are. Uh, fortunately, that's not me talking for three hours. That'd be terribly boring. Um, but it's, uh, I normally talk for probably about half the time, and then we have discussions yeah. um, interspersed during that, during that time. Um, based on your experience of theological education, which you've done elsewhere, part of, what do you think is unique about the educational experience at the Vancouver School of Theology? I suppose there's a number of things that I'd hope lots of schools would do, but which I've really noticed here. Hmm. Um, the ecumenical side of things here is taken very seriously. There's a chance for people to genuinely be what they are in terms of their denomination, but also to do that very respectfully in the context of other denominations. And I think an expectation that we will learn from one another. There's a, a phrase that's going around in ecumenical circles at the moment called receptive ecumenism, whereby I'm not going to tell you what your... Uh, why my denomination is the best, what I'm going to do is try and learn from you something that might enrich my own experience of my denomination. Mm -hmm. So something that isn't necessarily missing in my denomination, but something that will certainly enrich my experience of my denomination. So trying to receive things from one another. And I think VST does that very well. There's also a slightly wider ecumenical context because we're next door to St. Mark's Roman Catholic College and we have some professors who have their offices here in VST. Um, and so I've got to know some of uh, those professors very well. I'm going to watch a football match with one of them later on. Um, so that's, that's a great um, and by ecumenical football, thing. You mean? I mean Canadian football okay. in this instance. Oh. Yeah. Really? I <laughs> yeah. assumed. Wow. <laughs> 
that's wow, that's really translating well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> then you have to call it a football game. Yeah, oh, right, yeah, okay. But, sorry, I, I, I'm, yeah. I, that's that's yeah, an advanced yeah, no, no, level no, of no, Canadian yeah, linguistics yeah. that I haven't got to yet. <laughs> Uh, so that ecumenical thing is, is one of them. I think there's a, a real vision for inclusion in the school. So we try and genuinely include in a sort of big tent kind of way as many people as possible. That's anybody at all really is, is, is attempted to be brought in and, and have a place and a voice um, and, and somewhere that they can find themselves here at VST. I've already in just a few months learned a huge amount from our Indigenous Studies professor Ray Aldred um, and other Indigenous people I've met uh, through the Indigenous Studies Centre. That's a real gift that VST has um, because we offer an MDiv by extension mm-hmm. for Indigenous students, which I'm sure is, is excellent and they get a lot from. But in fact, I've found that I've got so much from them and learnt so much about Indigenous culture already. And the, the, the stories, some of which, of course, are, are deeply tragic um, but uh, it's, it's been a, a very deep learning experience having conversations with Ray and with others. Um, and that's a, a, a maybe a unique thing that VST does very, very well. Your, your answer there on that question and just you know, watching you, listening to you speak it, and the way you describe VST as a place where you can you know, be who you are, both across denomination, the kind of the you know, receptivity you speak about, so then I'm thinking like, okay, you know, what matters to you? And that gets me to thinking of the book that, that you've written this recently that came out um, that I've read, I don't know, 25% of so far. And um, that reading that helps me to see kind of who you are and what matters to you. And so I thought it'd be good just to give you a chance to, to kind of mention that and to talk about that. So I basically, um, on intratextuality in the Gospel of Luke, so how these texts, how, how the text is constructed, um, but one of the things that stu- struck me right at the beginning was um, your notes on order, like Luke saying, uh, my dear Theophilus, I'm going to give you this like orderly account. And you speak of order as ordering towards faith, towards people knowing that they are a friend of God and God is a friend of theirs. And it's just such a beautiful way. So maybe just tell us about the book a little bit, what matters Sure. So, so the book, um, the book really came about because... I was reading the Bible one day. I know it's a curious thing to do, isn't it? But I was, I was reading the Bible, and that's fantastic. And I was, I was that's the name of this episode. Yeah. yeah. One day I was reading the Bible, and I noticed something that I'd never noticed before. And I was reading it in English, and I noticed it in an English translation. But then when I looked at Greek, there were far more connections than I noticed. Um, so I was reading the story of Jesus as a boy in the temple. And it's a story that Christians probably don't know very well, although it's in the Gospel of Luke. We kind of read it and yeah, pass it's by. It's fanciful, like, little boy. That's yeah, it, yeah, yeah he exactly. He was so smart as a little boy. Yeah, which all parents say, yeah. don't they? <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, as I read it, I noticed, because the story I know really well from Luke is the story so many people know from Luke, which is the road to Emmaus. And I started to notice connections between the two stories, one of which is right at the start of the Gospel, well, in chapter 2, and the other which more or less closes the Gospel off in chapter 24. Uh, And there are a number of connections between the two stories. So in both stories, a pair of travellers go away from Jerusalem, then turn around and run back towards Jerusalem when they realise they're wrong about the presence of Jesus. 
one set think that Jesus is with them and the other set yes. think he's not with them. They realize they're wrong and in both instances it makes them spin around and run back to Jerusalem. In, in the Greek text, um, there's only two places in the Gospel of Luke where the phrase, and they return to Jerusalem, occurs. In those, it's in those two stories. And in the first one, the next word is seeking. And in the second one, you've, you get finding. So you've got that the kind of connection. You've got the bookends. So how we you watch have. a television show or something. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and there's, as you read those stories, there's then a number of other connections and uh, words that only occur in those two stories. And I thought, that's really weird because they're at opposite ends of the gospel. And then, of course, I realized that when the gospel was written, it wasn't written to be in a book. It was written as a standalone text to be sent to Theophilus and his community. And if we take that really seriously, then I think we have to assume that the author, call him Luke, is hoping that Theophilus and his community are going to have this as their preeminent text. And what are they going to do when they get to the end of their preeminent text? They're not going to just put it on a shelf. This is the story of Jesus. They're going to turn back to the start and start reading again and then probably start reading again because this is their most important text and they'll probably read it approximately liturgically like we would read a portion whenever it is they meet. So suddenly what was at two ends of the text, actually if it's a circle, they're next to each other. Mm-hmm. And so it makes sense that the author may well have put clues in one late to the other. And then when I started looking through, um, I, I noticed various other moments where Luke has deliberately, it seems to me, changed his source material Mm. to reflect something from somewhere else in his text. So the story that only occurs in Luke is the circumcision of Jesus. It doesn't occur anywhere else in the Gospels. It's kind of assumed um, on the eighth day. And when you get to to the transfiguration, uh, it happens in Luke after eight days after the previous episode. In Luke's source material, it's after six days, if we think that Mark was something Mm. that Luke had read. So Luke deliberately changes that, and that's the only two occasions in the Gospel when the word eight appears in the text. Um, And then there are other connections between those two stories that uh, aren't immediately apparent, but which um, are telling us something about the purity of of Jesus that... uh, that Luke is trying to convey for us. So th- this goes throughout the text, and there's probably and plenty of this. And that's what you call the spiral. So it's the sp- uh, I've called it the spiral. I thought about calling it the circular gospel because you read it again and again, but the, the yeah, point but is every, every time yeah. you read it, you go down a layer deeper and discover this, something new. This is new. why it, it struck me in, in, in context of a conversation of being at a, a theological school that um, the opening again of the text, the realization that the student comes to the class there's some kind of interest in religion, faith, the Bible, you know, that, and that it's the professor and the students together that are like, oh, I read the Bible and saw this, and that, that there's not, you know, you're not inventing something, but you're seeing something, um, and that was what really stood out to me. So I pictured you in class, like, you know, like you just said, one day I was reading the Bible, like that, you know, and and then the engagement of student and professor and how that is just fantastic. So that I should credit my. Um 
an MA class I was teaching with helping me with, with this. I haven't yeah. done it in the book, but um, I, I inflicted this theory about um, Road to Emmaus and the Boy in the Temple uh, on an MA class once because I'd read it sort of the week before and I thought, oh, yeah, try it out. I'll try it out, see, <laughs> yeah. how, it, see how it flies. Um, and so they got quite excited about it. So, oh, good, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. And I wrote it into a, a, that particular piece into an article and then... Um, during the pandemic, it was kind of my lockdown project. Expanded into the book. Uh, it's it's fantastic, and I yeah yeah I love this notion that you keep on seeking and keep on finding. Yes. yes. But the 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 finding this time is only preliminary to the next seeking, right? Yeah. 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 yeah I just thought it was such a good description of of the you know, the enterprise of theological education together, mm-hmm. what you just described there, Richard. That um, so what about challenges that you face in teaching? being here and I mean you're new so you know it's yeah I mean I, I suppose the biggest challenge don't, don't say the president <laughs> <laughs> well I'm not allowed to There's say what the biggest person. challenge is now <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the second biggest challenge I face is the <laughs> president there's a number of students who I act as advisor for uh, who have only just this minute become Anglicans now, for various really good reasons, they might have started at VST in another denomination and really discovered their home within Anglicanism, mm-hmm. and that's that's great. I mean, it's something that um, the other my equivalents in the other denominations and I said very explicitly at the start of this year was, you may have come as an yeah. Anglican, but if you feel actually over the course of your time here you're called to be a Presbyterian, then we will celebrate that with you and we will help you in that transition. But of course, one of the challenges of that is when somebody becomes an Anglican, mm-hmm. there's a lot of stuff they don't know about the Anglican church, uh, some of which is our dirty linen that we don't sort of show in public, um, which if you've been around the Anglican church for a while that you'll implicitly know but more it's to do with uh, just not really understanding how liturgies run mm. and some of the um, more technical side of that. Uh, and there can be assumptions that because something worked and, and was the way something was done in one tradition, it's the way it's done in another tradition. That's not necessarily the case. So part of the challenge is making people Anglican enough so being directive enough to say, you really need to go and do this, whilst also allowing that to be free enough for them to find their own path into Anglicanism and to their own way of being Anglican, because there's a thousand ways of being legitimately Anglican. Um, so next week, in Reading Week, there's a voluntary thing that some of them are doing uh, with me, a, a liturgy workshop where I'm going to teach them the intricacies of how to use smoke and various other things like that. High Anglican uh, stuff. Yeah, that, that they that might not otherwise be exposed to. Um, and I'm going to teach them one way of doing that and then at the end describe, and there will be other ways of also <laughs> doing this. But if you know one way, then at least you can hold your own if you need to. Many ways of doing smoke. Yes. There, will be, there will be more than just smoke, but <laughs> I'm looking forward to the smoke. <laughs> What do you guys find with that? I'm asking kind of the bo- both of you now. Like the denominational structure. So you, what you're mentioning is somebody comes from this tradition, but they might move over here, or they might. In terms of the the you know flavor of VST, like the culture of VST, how how much do those denominational lines play a part, or does does a student come? Or how many non-denominational students are there? How 
Yeah, so, so at VST, um, about 38% of our student body is not immediately from Anglican, United, or Presbyterian churches. So is that the biggest portion? Uh, maybe the biggest uh, single cohort of students are oh, from okay. other, other Christian denominations, yeah, or, or uh, international bodies that right. aren't the Anglican Church of Canada, the Presbyterian United Church, but maybe, maybe partners with them. Yeah, so that that being the biggest, or maybe the biggest portion, means that these these uh, lines are helpful, but they're not um, they're not prescriptive and kind of you don't you don't have to get paralyzed within those particular yeah. ways of seeing. Yeah, yeah. Rob's point earlier about the ecumenism that we practice here, it is receptive, but so for example, Rob's course in liturgy would have all these people from. I teach a course in theology would have people right across a broad spectrum of, of Christian churches and some exploring, some from other faith traditions, yeah. who are there with uh, a deep desire to learn. Um, so to, to do the particular and the general That's is always the tension, right? Because you, you need, as Rob does, to prepare students to function, as he was just saying, in uh, Anglican liturgical context, but attentive to the wider church. There's a new word in circulation, they call it glocal. And, and I thought someone had made a spelling mistake. I corrected it three times in a book. Before Sounds like it a smoothie place. But, but it has to do with both the local, paying attention to the contextual, yeah. and also paying attention to the fact that there is this reality of the global church. And we experience the same, I do when I teach, the same kind of tension between paying attention to denominational distinctives and then to a more kind of generalized sense of Christianity, you know, the Catholic Christianity. Yeah, that's fantastic. So as a teacher, Rob, what, what's, tell us something spectacular. T t no, t tell us something about, what, what do you find especially delightful or hopeful about the teaching experience or being a professor? The thing that I've, I've really, really enjoyed since being here is helping students to discover what their vocation is. Now, I've been here only a few months, so I haven't actually got to the end of that process mm -hmm. with really anybody yet, but I've had a lot of good conversations with people. Yeah. And what I've said a number of times, this is particularly in the Anglican context, but um, don't let the church put you into a box. Try and really work at what it is that, that you are called to do and that, that is particular to you. And then work out maybe where the church's boxes fit, but actually resist that to start with. Just try and work out where where God is actually at work in your life and where you're being called. Um, and that seems to have been a helpful way of talking with people. Um, and I've had two conversations on Zoom today with students um, just to do those sort of conversations um, where people, both of them, had emailed me and said, oh, can we have a conversation about where I might be going? Mm -hmm. And so, uh, yeah, uh, and it's, it's about finding where their, where their ministry might be um, in that very wide context. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of enthusiasm from students across the whole of VST for working out where they're supposed to be called um, to try and serve God better to make a better world. I mean, it sounds all quite idealistic, and I suppose it is in a way, but there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and I, I'm all for it, really. Rob, do you, you, I'm just listening to you, you speak like, um, 
you really enjoy that time of a sort of, you know, there's the front of the classroom, but then there's the work of formation that takes place kind of personally and paying attention to this particular person. Do you, you, you seem delighted by that. Is that true? I, I am absolutely delighted by that, yeah. So um, I love being in the classroom with a group of people, but actually working one-to-one -one with people as well um, is is delightful and is all part of it. Um, and I, I hope that those two things form a bit of a nexus so that actually students can talk to one another about their vocation and they can bring that into the classroom as well. Um, and I think church can be a very anxious place um, at the moment and lots of people talk about you know, declining numbers and so on. And yeah, numbers are, numbers are part of it, but I want to step back and say fundamentally God is and fundamentally that's why the church is and however much we get anxious about things we're not going to fix the church and in a sense I Rowan Williams says this he used to be Archbishop of Canterbury and so you know notional head of the Anglican communion he said it really doesn't matter if the Anglican church disappears altogether mm -hmm. because the church will still be and God is and, and I kind of want to I want to say that whilst also saying, and yeah, do your best to get people to actually attend your church and actually put a good show on for people. Um, but do it in a non-anxious way and it'll be much more successful. And I think getting this idea of people discovering what they're really called to do is all part of that. Isn't that like lovely? so lovely and... It just gets me thinking. Um, back to your to your book when you uh, Theophilus material, like addressed to Theophilus or dear Theophilus, that um, identified in translation as like lover of God or friend of God. What you just said there, and then relating to your work here, that uh, and and you present in the book that this is, could be a person, likely a person. And most scholarship thinks that, but also is the way of addressing the reader. The, the one who's entering this kind of enterprise. And what you just said there, I hear you saying, like, friend of God. It's anyone who wishes to be a friend of God is, is part of this. Yeah. yeah, That's such a great invitation. So thank you so much. Thank you. Well, it was fantastic uh, talking. I do recommend the book. You can get it. It is available on Kindle, right? I would advise the Kindle version at yeah, the moment. I the, looked it up. There's, there's, a, there's a hardback version, which is phenomenally expensive. Don't, yeah. don't, don't go for that unless you're a library. Um, but the Kindle version, the Kindle version is uh, easily available, and there will be a paperback out um, around March. Thanks so much for speaking with us, and thanks all for joining us here for this conversation. Thanks, Todd. Great. Thank you. Ruderholtz is a production of the Vancouver School of Theology. For more information about VST, visit vst.edu. Thanks for listening to Bruderholtz. Holtz.